0: Right. well, my name's Sam and as you can see, I'm Asian. And what you're going to realise is most Asians cannot swim. And so most Asians will have a near-death drowning story. Usually where they were at a pool party, some well-meaning Aussie friend pushed them into the pool, assuming they could swim, but they couldn't swim. When I went to primary school, I was the only kid in my class who could not swim, because I was the only Asian in my class. And once a week, swimming lessons were compulsory. And the swimming teacher never knew what to do with me. She was a swimming teacher, but up until then, everyone could swim. And so she didn't know what to do with someone who could not swim. And so all she used to do was yell at me, SWIM! As if I could swim! And I couldn't swim. And I remember, I would just sink. And one time, I sunk and I breathed in so much water, I just vomited my lunch back up to the pool. And for the rest of the lesson, my lunch did lapse around the pool, scaring the other swimmers. But if someone's drowning, there's no point in, you know, you swim at them, because if they just swim, they would. Just saying swim won't help them swim. And telling Christians to tell their friends about Jesus feels just like that. Hey, we should all tell our friends about Jesus. And there's this helpless feeling that we have, well, you know, I would be doing it if I could. And yet, every sermon application, every Bible study application, there's always, you know, we should tell our friends about Jesus. And that just makes us feel guilty and helpless so tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to share some practical tips on how to tell our friends about Jesus uh, tips that can equip us, and empower us so we don't feel so helpless uh, so these are going to be about six suggestions on how to tell our friends about Jesus they're not silver bullet answers like do this and everything will work, they're guaranteed but they're suggestions, they're good ways but they're not the only ways so you might have some better ways. So I'm not even saying they're the best ways. I'm sure we all have good ways, even better ways. But tonight I'm just going to share six tips on how we can tell our friends about Jesus. And that's going to go for about the next hour, just a little bit. Then we'll have a 10, 20 minute break and then we'll come back to some Q&A. All right, so six tips on how to tell our friends about Jesus. So tip number one, and this is the longest one. Uh, but, so don't panic when you think, whoa, that one's so long. How long are the other five going to go? This is the longest one. Number one, we need to get our friends to become their friends. How do we tell our friends about Jesus? Well, number one, we have to get our friends to become their friends. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, imagine if I got up in front of you and said, hey, I've got an amazing story to tell you. Last night, while my wife and I were just kicking back, unwinding, watching TV, this UFO landed in our backyard. And a little green man got out, he told us to come in the UFO, so we did, and And the UFO took us to his home planet, Jupiter, we got out, and he showed us his friends and family, we had a meal, then we got back into the UFO, and we travelled back to Earth, And because of the whole space-time continuum thing, we went through a time portal and when we got back to planet Earth, only one second of Earth time went past. Who here believes that story? In a room of 100, who here believes that story? No one, so not one person in this room believes that story. I've got another amazing story to tell you. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son Jesus and he was 100% God, 100% human at the same time and while he was alive, he healed people who were blind, gave their sight back. There was a dead girl he raised back to life, and then he himself died on a cross. And if you believe this, I'm like, all your sins are taken away by God. And Jesus didn't stay there three days later. He came out of the grave, back to life, and now he is in heaven in a bodily form, but his spirit is everywhere. And if you trust this and you believe this, His Spirit will live in your heart, so that when you die, your soul will leave your dead body, be with Jesus in heaven, and one day in the future, depending which denomination you belong to, He will come back in a bodily form and set up a kingdom here on earth. And at that moment, your dead body will come out of its grave and be reunited with your soul. Who here believes that story? Yeah. Why? So in a room about 100 people, most people are happy to believe that story. Now think about it. Why are we happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? And if I'm telling you the Jesus story, I'm not sure I even believe it myself. And the Jupiter story, let's face it, is a little bit more believable than the Jesus story, isn't it? So why are we happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Why? Because of this thing, which philosophers called pre-programming, Predetermined plausibility structures which prejudge what we hear, and based on that, we decide whether something's believable or not believable. So this is what's happening. As I'm up here in front of you, that's me happily telling you my story. Here's you listening. You have these plausibility structures. Predetermined, pre-programmed, plausibility structures that pre-judge what I tell you, and based on that, your plausibility structures prejudge what you hear as either believable or not believable. So your plausibility structures, as I'm telling you the Jupiter story, they are just ba 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 red flagging everything. So I say, hey! Last night this UFO landed in our backyard. Your plausibility instructions is going ba ba ba! Unbelievable! 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 And then we go to this UFO and we went to the planet Jupiter and we got out. At that moment, your plausibility instruction is going ba ba ba! Unbelievable! 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 And then we came back and we went through a space-time continuum thing, a time portal, and on only one second of Earth time went by. Your plausibility structures now, ba, 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 unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. But as I tell you the Jesus story, your predetermined, pre programmed plausibility structures are prejudging what you hear and you're green lighting everything, bling, bling, bling. So say 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son Jesus, I don't know how this works, but he's born of a virgin, 100% God, 100% human at the same time. Your plausibility structures are a green lighting. Bling, 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 believable, believable, believable. And he died on a cross, and you trusted in your sins pff, are taken away. Your plausibility structures are green lighting a bling 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 believable, believable, believable. And three days later, after he died, his body, he rose from the dead back to life. Your plausibility structures are green lighting and bling bling bling. Believable, believable, believable. Now this moment you think, well, where do I get these? Plausibility structures from? Well, they come from three main sources. Our plausibility structures come from community, the people that we know and trust that we hang out with, they come from our community, they come from our experience, our personal experiences, and they come from the facts, evidence, and data that we believe support or don't support the story. So right now as I tell you the Jupiter story, none of us here live in a community where anyone believes in the Jupiter story. As I tell you the Jupiter story, right now none of us here have had a personal experience of an alien and a UFO. As I tell you the Jupiter story, none of us here believe there are enough facts, evidence and data to support the UFO story. But as I tell you the Jesus story, right now most of us here live in a community where others also believe in the Jesus story. As I tell you the Jesus story, right now in this room most of us have had a personal experience of Jesus in our life. As I tell you the Jesus story, most of us here believe there are enough facts, evidence and data to support the Jesus story. So we get these pause video structures from community experiences of facts, evidence and data. And whether we like it or not, rightly or wrongly, the one that is most important for determining what we believe is community. Rightly or wrongly, whether we like it or not, the most important thing is the community, people that we know and trust. And the weakest one out of all of this is facts, evidence, and data. Whether we like it or not, rightly or wrongly, this is the weakest one, people with that they interpret facts, evidence and data according to how they want it, and they can explain away facts, evidence and data. So if I was to say right now, hey, I just live in Coyland, it's not too far from here, the UFO is still in my backyard right now. Who here would make the effort to come to my backyard tonight to check it out? No one, no one. The, the UFO is right there, and even if you did come... And you saw it, you touched it, you felt it, and you knocked on it, dum, 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 dum. you say, ah, 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 there's a mistake. This is an elaborate hoax. There's some other explanation for this. So, facts, evidence, and data are very weak in compelling belief, and they're usually explained away. The most important thing, whether you like it or not, rightly or wrongly, for determining belief is community. We believe what people around us believe. We do what people around us do and we think like people around us think. We are products of our community. Uh, We've got three boys at age 8, 6 and 4 and our second son, when my wife was pregnant with our second son, we we couldn't work out what to name him. Our parents always play this game when it comes to naming your kid. So they want a name not too common like John, Peter or Paul because that's boring. Oh, but they don't want a name so funky like Matthew with three T's and a silent Q. They want that name just right, just in the middle, not so common, not so weak, just right, that shows the world that their parents are cool, hip, trendy, edgy, right on that fashion frontier. So we thought, oh, we can't name him John, we can't go weird, what can we name him? And we thought, Cooper, hey, we we'll named him Cooper. Not too common, not too weird, just right. And we named him Cooper, and that year Cooper was a top ten name in Australia. It was a common name. See, we think like people around us think, even though we don't know. We do what people around us do, and we believe what people around us believe. We are products of our community. Now, in this room, most of us here are Bible-believing Christians, right? Who here thinks women have a right to vote? In elections, women have a right to vote. All right. So almost every hand, every guy goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me, me. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, yep. I'm all over it. All right. A hundred years ago, I just done that in a room full of Bible-believing Christians, and I said, "Who believes women have a right to vote?" Most of said, "No, they don't have a right to vote. We are products of the way our community thinks. It's not just a matter of being a Bible-believing Christian." Now, who in this room thinks uh, we have a right to government-funded? Education, right? The government for foot the bill for education, so every uni student, hands go up, yeah, the workers aren't so sure. Alright, so Bible believing Christians, most of us here think, okay, we have a right to public education. Who here thinks we have a right to public health? The government should help foot the bill, there should be a safety net. Alright, so majority, majority, not everyone, but majority. Who here thinks that motorbike, a motorcyclist should wear a helmet, should be mandatory, should be compulsory, they should wear a helmet. Wow! Again, majority opinion. So Bible believing Christians, majority opinion, public health, public education, motorcycle, swear helmet. If this was America, if this was America and a room full of Bible believing Christians, most people would say, No, nah, I'm not for public health, I'm not for public education because it's my money, I work for it, why should I fund the health and education of someone else who didn't work as hard as I did? It's my money. And if I said, who he believes motorcyclists should wear a helmet? They said, nut nut nut. It's their head. It's their right. They can do what they want with their head. And if they have an accident, at least they're paying for the hospital bill and not me. Because there's no public health. All right, so what you're seeing is we do what our community does. We believe what our community believes. And we think like our community thinks. We are products of our community. So based on what our community thinks is believable, that's what we use to believe a story or not. Now just imagine tonight as you came in here and I tell you the Jupiter story and I'm the only one in this room that believes in the Jupiter story I'm the one schmuck that believes in the Jupiter story Now I'm the one schmuck that believes I've had an experience enough facts, evidence and data to support the, the Jupiter story but let's say you came in here tonight and as I'm telling you the Jupiter story this whole half of the room says me too that happened to me last night UFO landed, we jumped in, we met a Jupiter. I thought that was you, just wasn't sure, didn't want to wave, just in case it wasn't you. But we came back out in one second of Earth, and I went by. How do you feel on this half of the room now? You're starting to think, whoa, there's something to this story. It's a little bit more believable, because half the people that I know and trust also believe the Jupiter story. Now let's say we came here tonight, and as I tell you the Jupiter story, everyone in this room says, me too. That happened to me last night, And you're the one schmuck who didn't have that happen to you. How are you feeling right now? You're saying, this is very believable. In a room full of 100 people I know and trust, they all believe in a Jupiter story. So it doesn't matter whether it's true, uh, the truth status isn't what we're talking about. It's the believery status we're talking about. And it comes across as much more believable. It's why... If you belong in a regional town in New South Wales and you run a youth group on Friday night and three teenagers turn up in the whole town, these teenagers feel like the only schmucks in the whole town to believe the Jesus story. And it gets a little bit unbelievable. Then once a year, you take the youth group in a bus, you take them to Katoomba for the conference, and there's 2,000 teenagers jumping, moshing, screaming, worshiping Jesus. At that moment you think, wow, there are 2,000 of us. This is more believable. That's why Paul says, hey, I saw Jesus risen from the dead, but not just me. 12 apostles saw Jesus risen from the dead, and not just 12 apostles, but 500 people who are alive right now, and you can talk to them. So yes, it's true, but now it's also much more believable. We believe what the people in our community that we know and trust also believe. Now, what's this got to do with evangelism? Well typically when we think we have to tell our friends about Jesus, we go solo as a Christian. We're like, yeah you're right, it's about time I tell my friends about Jesus, I need some non-Christian friends, non-Christian contacts, so we go on a solo mission. We sign up for a soccer team, a book club, um, you know, a gardening appreciation society or something, and, and then we go, but we go solo, and the problem with that is in a team of 20 soccer players, or a book club with 20 members, we're the one and only person that believes in the Jesus story. So it might be true, but it's unbelievable because we're the one schmuck in a whole room only that believes in the Jesus story. So typically we go solo and that's why it's so hard work. What we need to do now is think of evangelism as a community thing where we get our friends to become their friends. What we need to do is what some evangelists are saying we need to merge our universes. Typically, as Christians, we have two universes of friends. We have a universe of Christian friends, and we have a universe of non Christian friends. And so, when our Christian friends go to the movies, we go to the movies with them. When our non Christian friends go to the movies, we go with our non Christian friends. When our Christian friends have a barbecue, we go to the barbecue. When our non Christian friends have a barbecue, we go with them. So we're two separate universes. What we need to do is deliberately merge our universes and get our friends to become their friends. And so when our Christian friends go to the movies, we say, hey, can I bring some of my works friends or uni friends along? When our non-Christian friends go to the movies, we say, hey, can I bring some of my other friends, your Christian friends along? When your Christian friends have a barbecue pool party, say, hey, can I bring some of my other friends along? When our non-Christian friends have a party, we're bring some of our Christian friends along, and bit by bit, and it takes time, it takes two years to form a community, two years to form friendships. Slowly but surely, our universes will merge and our friends will become their friends. So when I was working as a doctor, I lived in an apartment with three other doctors, and none of them were Christians. So I had three non-Christian flatmates, but because of that, my church friends are always coming and hanging out in my apartment. So slowly, my church friends became their friends. And when my apartment friends would go off to the movies, I would invite my church friends. When my church friends had a function, I would say, hey, can I bring my flatmates along? And bit by bit, after two years, the universes merged, and my friends became their friends. And after two years, they started coming to my church. It was just a natural thing to do, because that's where all their friends were. And after two years, all three, uh, professed a faith in Jesus, converted, uh, and because it became much more believable. It was always true, the Jesus story, but now because their friends also believed it, it became much more believable. So what we need to do is merge our universes, get our friends to become their friends. If you're in a, in a situation where you can share accommodation, that's really easy. Uh, share accommodation with non-Christian friends, get your church friends to come over and visit a lot. Maybe we're in a situation where we can offer accommodation And again, that's a way we can get non-Christians living with us. And one of the most evangelistic things we can do is the, the, the dinner, the family dinner, very evangelistic. You see, a functional Christian family and the way they do dinner. Okay, so that's just one suggestion. We need to merge our universes and get our friends to become their friends. The second suggestion is this. We need to go to their things before they come to our things. We need to go to their things before they come to our things. So I have a friend called Andrew who goes to Grace Church, Grace Point, and he often puts evangelistic functions on where I go and give the talk, and every time I've gone to one of these functions, I've noticed Andrew is there with five non-Christian friends, and they're different five non-Christian friends every time I go to speak at one of these events where I speak about Jesus and give the Jesus story, and not only does he have five non-Christian friends all the time with these things, but they're always happy to be there. I can tell from the body language they're happy to be there. And afterwards, they always come and talk to me, and they joke. They are so happy to have come to one of these church evangelistic events. So then I went to Andrew's wife, Jackie. I said, Jackie, what is going on? How come every time I speak to one of these things, Andrew has five non-Christian friends, and they're different at each event, and they're happy to be there. What is his secret? And Jackie said, well, it's very simple. We're always going to their things. So this is just a natural thing for them to do to come to one of our things. We're always hanging out. We're always going to their things. So when their kids have a, a, a birthday party, we go. When one of them is in a sports game, we go. When one of them has a graduation, we go. We're always going to their things, so this is just one of many things that we do, and it's just natural that they come and come to one of our things. Now think about it. typically when we think of evangelism, we think of it like this, the church has to put an event on, that's what we think, and then the church says, you need to bring a non-Christian friend along, and you think, how am I going to get a non-Christian friend to a church thing? So typically they say to men, well, we're going to do a man's breakfast, okay, we're going to do a man's breakfast, then there's the a who Oh, how am I going to get a friend to a breakfast? I mean, when do men do breakfast together anyway? And now I've got this added pressure. It's a church thing. How is this going to work? I mean, you can imagine your non Christian friend is going to, oh, here he comes, here he comes. You know what he's going to do? He's going to try and invite us to one of these breakfast things. And, and it's really weird, really awkward. Here he comes, here he comes. Oh, no, he's going, oh, I'm going to ask us about the breakfast. And you're thinking the same thing. But if we're always going to their things, that takes the pressure off and if we're always hanging out together anyway, this is just one of many things that we do together anyway, so it's not so unnatural, not so forced, and it takes the pressure off. We go to their things before they come to our things. Number three, it's what my wife and I call the coffee, dinner, gospel sequence the coffee dinner gospel sequence so if we want to tell our friends about jesus we need to be able to take them out for coffee first this is where you begin the entry point is here this is way too hard to begin here and even coffee is not that easy you ask them for coffee they'll turn you down maybe five or ten times and eventually you do coffee and you do coffee a few times and eventually you say hey let's Let's do a meal. Let's do lunch or let's do dinner together. And after once or twice or a few more times doing a meal together, gradually, bit by bit, there'll be chances to now talk about the gospel. And think about it. Coffee is safe because it goes for minutes rather than hours. It's usually in what's called public space rather than private space. You end up talking about safe things like interests, like what did you do in the weekend sort of stuff. Bit by bit, you come to dinner. Dinner becomes a bit more private, private space. So you start talking about things like values, uh, belief systems, and bit by bit, people might start talking about worldview and religion. So it's just a very natural sequence. But in order to understand the natural sequence, we have to understand something that happened in Western philosophy, in Western history. In the 1600s, There was a movement called the Enlightenment, and a famous philosopher, German philosopher, called Immanuel Kant, he divided the whole known world into two realms, two spheres. On this side, we had the phenomenal. The phenomenal realm, and then on this side, we had the noumenal realm. The phenomenal realm, that's the world of Facts, data, evidence. For example, 1 plus 1 equals 2. Triangles have 3 sides. Sky is blue. Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. So that's the phenomenal realm. And then on this side is the noumenal realm. This is the realm of ethics, value, And God, religion. Now what Kant is saying, he's saying these realms both exist. It's not like this realm doesn't exist, but the realms both exist. But we can only access this realm. This realm we can see, we can touch, we can feel, we can confirm with evidence. This realm we can't see, touch or feel or confirm with evidence. So what this means is this realm we never end up arguing because we can all have equal access to the data. So when we say one plus one equals two, we don't start a fight five. You guys go, say, no, it's not. When I say triangles have three sides, you don't go, no, they don't. When I say, hey, how blue is the sky? You go, yeah, it was blue today. And water boils degrees Celsius. You guys, yeah, yeah, it does, it does. But this side now, ethics value God. I say, hey, you know, gun control is good. No, it's not, it's bad. Um, Chocolate's better than vanilla. James Bond is better than romantic comedies. No, they're not. Now you're not fighting because how do you verify these claims? There is a god. No, there is not a god. How do you verify these claims? So this realm starts causing fights. So what's happened in the Western world ever since the 1600s? This is what's called secular space. This is sacred space. secular is for the public. Sacred is for the private only. So we're always taught at dinner parties never to talk about religion and politics because that's private space. you are got to start an argument if you do that. What do we talk about? Boys, what did you do on the weekend? Boy, how blue is the sky, hey? And what? Uh, how about them bulldogs? Because that's safe. That's safe talk here. You can confirm it. Alright, so what's happened is ever since the 1600s, the Western world and Australia, we have become an unofficial closed country where we're not allowed to talk about Jesus in public. So we have official closed countries where you can't talk about Jesus in public, but Australia and the Western world has become a de facto unofficial closed country where we cannot talk about Jesus in public. That's why it's so hard to tell our friends about Jesus. So let's say I said, hey, instead of running this in here tonight, let's go out on the main street of of Surrey Hills and we'll have an open air prayer meeting in Surrey Hills and I'll make sure I mention the word God and Jesus as many times as I can in the open air, open air public prayer meeting. Who here would join me for this open air public prayer meeting where I say God and Jesus as many times as I can? No one, because you think, oh boy. I don't know how I feel about it, because that's public space. This is what we should do in private, in a, in a church or in sacred space. That's why we come from doing this here, inside and not outside. Interestingly, this is a Western phenomenon. So have you noticed non-Western people don't have this hang up? So if you go to an Asian grocery store... They have a shrine set up, so their religion is very public. They don't have this public-private divide that we have. If you catch a taxi with a Muslim driver, you can talk to him about God. If you go to an Asian news agent and ask him about his faith, about his Buddhism, he doesn't go, whoa, dude, you're violating my sacred-secular divide. They don't do that. So it's only a purely Western hang-up. So we're an unofficial closed country where we cannot talk about Jesus in public. You can believe that the price of your own home... But that's not for public space, and right now you tell, try to tell your friends about this. you're in public space. So rightly or wrongly, whether we like this or not, this is our culture. We're unofficial closed country, so we can try to fight against it, and we can. But I'm going to show you how, ways we can work with it. And the way we work with it is the coffee, dinner, gospel sequence. Because coffee is safe. You're in public space. And you're going to talk about, boy, how blue was the sky? What did you do in the weekend? How about them Bulldogs? But bit by bit, as you do dinner, gradually you're moving more and more into private, private space. And bit by bit, as they know and trust and they feel safe, they will talk about worldviews, religions, ethics, and values. So it's the coffee dinner gospel. What's interesting? My wife and I was really proactive, trying to um, meet non Christians. Let's make non-Christian friends and see how many of them we can tell about Jesus. So right now we're a stage in life where we have many opportunities, mainly because we've got three little kids. So my wife, for example, takes the kids to swimming lessons. So then she's on the side for about 30 minutes talking to the other parents. We Our kids also play Saturday sport. So that means for a whole hour we're on the sideline talking with other non-Christian parents. We, my wife also runs... A, a play group for parents that after they drop the kids off at school, they can hang around in a little play group and hang out with the other mothers for about an hour or two in, in, a, in a church building. Now, the, which one of these will work the best for telling our friends about Jesus? So, the swimming group doesn't really work because you're in public space, very hard to talk about Jesus in a, in a swimming pool, right? You've only got 30 minutes and after everyone disappears and they go off home because it's dinner time, you've got to make dinner. The, um, the sports game on Saturday, same thing. Very hard to talk about Jesus. You're in public space. You're on the sideline. And everyone's just looking at the game anyway. They don't want to be talking about religion, politics. They just want to be talking about how blue the sky is. And boy, how about them bulldogs, hey? And boy, we're winning or we're losing. That's sort, of, sort of very verifiable facts. And after, boom, everyone disappears. because Saturday's such a busy day. But the mother's play group is an interesting one. Because you hanging out with coffee... And after it's over, my wife always says, hey, do you want to come back to our place for another coffee? And they do. And then coffee becomes lunch. And so they hang out for lunch. And when I come home from work, they're still there. So lunch is merged into dinner time now. <laughs> and so after a year or two, two people out of the playgroup started coming to church and would say they profess and given their lives to Jesus. Because gradually we've been able to move them from public space bit by bit into private space. So that's number three. We need to think delivery about the coffee. Get them to coffee first, get them to coffee, and and then move them to dinner, a meal, and gradually, bit by bit, as they know you and they trust you, they might start wanting to talk about numeral world stuff, the world of worldview, ethics, values, and religion. All right, number four. We need to learn to listen to their story. We need to learn to listen to their story. Now, typically, this is what happens for me. I might be at a party. Music's and, popping And then you end up talking to someone. And you make small talk. And uh, that's the, you know, boy, how blue is the sky? What are you doing the weekend? How about them bulldogs? And... You ask them a safe question, hey, what do you do for work? And they say, oh, I'm an engineer, okay, and I was safe. And then they ask you, well, what do you do for work? Oh, I work for City Bible Forum. And you just hear the music stop. And everyone's awkward. now we're just standing there. Oh, 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 oh. And think about what has just happened. Well, we've been in public space, and we've been in the realm of the new phenomenon where it's safe. We were making safe, small talk. Boy, how blue sky happened in Bulldogs. What do you do for work? That's meant to be a safe question. They reciprocated, what do you do for work? And I mentioned the word Bible. And just like that, wah, kicking the screen i I dragged the conversation into the noodle realm, the sacred, private space way before we were ready for it. Right, you know, because we dragged it there in seconds and then instead of going coffee, 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 and the gospel. So now we're here, so now we're both awkward and so it's like a game of chicken, a game of dare, one of us is going to say, Boy, how about the bulldogs? Hey, yeah, yeah, how about the bulldogs? And we're back in this safe space. But what I every now and then do is I think, okay, okay, we're here way before we're ready in the relationship, but here we are in the sacred, in the numeral um, I will give us permission to stay here. So what I do then I say, "Well, do you have a faith?" And it's a really safe question. It's not threatening. Do you have a faith? Otherwise, is do you pray? Do you pray? Uh, these are really safe questions. And what you're doing is you're giving the person permission to stay here, and they don't want to talk about it, that's fine, we can all retreat back and go, oh, who's this guy, what did you do in the weekend, having them bulldogs, but if they want to, now we're giving them permission to stay here, and surveys show that 2 out of 3, even 3 out of 4 Aussies have a faith they believe in a supernatural God, they believe in life after death and they realise they need to nurture the spiritual side of their life 4 out of 5 Aussies, according to surveys, we're just not allowed to talk about it, because we're in a closed country and now just say okay I'm giving us permission to stay and talk about faith and spirituality and what I do so so for example I may say hey do you have a faith and one time a lady said yeah I'm a Buddhist and at this point now you want to listen to their story and I went wow tell me about that how did you become a Buddhist Were you always a Buddhist? And she said, no. Did you grow up in the Buddhist family? She said, no. But tell me, how did you become a Buddhist? And then tell me how this works. What does this look like? How do you pray? How do you worship? Which temple do you go to? What do you do in the temple? Because I've got no idea. And you're actually genuinely interested, because typically the faith that people practice, e.g. Buddhism, it's nothing like the faith they write up in books. So just because you've read about Buddhism in a book doesn't mean it's any to do with what people do in practice. So ask them as many questions. Oh, how do you raise your children? What are your dreams? Is your husband also Buddhist? How does that work if he's not a Buddhist? um, Tell them about your prayer life. How do you worship? And ask them as many questions so that you can hear them, understand them, and also empathise. Feel what they're feeling about their faith. Now, if if they're an atheist, and they say, well, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. That's also a story. That's also a faith position. So you can go, wow, tell me about it. You're an atheist. How did that happen? Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Or well, how are you an atheist? And they might even say, well, you know, I grew up in an atheist family, mum and dad didn't believe in God. Not well, that that makes me an atheist, but at some stage, I had to make a decision for myself at the age of 16. <laughs> So you get them to tell their story, and you hear them, understand them, and empathize with them. So I started this year doing this talk quite a fair bit, and just a few months ago, I had to fly to Adelaide to give exactly the same talk I'm giving tonight. And I was jumping on a five o'clock plane, and I was going to get off the plane, bang, immediately give the talk in front of like 200 people in Adelaide, at around seven o'clock, and I'm actually an introvert. All right, I'm a loud introvert. Uh, but um, so for any time I'm in front of a crowd, I need to have private time to recharge for being in front of a crowd. So I'm an introvert, and I get on the plane, and I was just about to sit down, and before I could get the earbuds in my ears, which is the international symbol for "do not talk to me," <laughs> the person next to me started talking to me, and he said, "Why are you going to Adelaide? Uh, is it for work or play?" And I went, "Work." it's just silence, I'm like, oh, he wants me to reciprocate, okay, why are you going to Adelaide? He goes, oh, I'm returning from Sydney, I had to give a talk in Sydney, and it's just silence, oh, he wants me to ask, okay, what was the talk on? And he said, oh, I had to give a talk to postgraduate doctors on the physics of the radiology and X-ray CT machines. And I went, oh, I did that exam 30 years ago. And I said, now we have something in common. Oh. <laughs> and then he said, well, what, do, what are you doing in Adelaide? I went, oh, here we go. I said, I'm giving a talk. And then I'd say, like, from the Bible. And then, what? just like that. And then, and then now in this awkward space, we were safe before talking about physics and radiology and medicine. Now in the realm of the sacred, the noumenal, the public, here in the private divide. And then so I thought, oh, I'm going to be such a hypocrite. I'm going to do this because I'm just going to go to Adelaide tell 200 people what to do when this happens. And so then I went, Do you have a faith? And then I went to listen to the story and he said, yes, I do. And I said, well, are you familiar with the Bible? He said, yes, I am. I grew up in South Africa and when I was a teenager, I checked out Christian churches and that's when I realised they were up front for hate crimes against gays. And I went, wow, tell me about that. <laughs> tell me how that happened. Like, tell me about the churches you went to. Tell me about your journey. And I let him talk and talk and talk as long as I could. Now, typically, if we ask someone what they did on the weekend, they usually have to reciprocate, say, what did you do on the weekend? And if we got them talking for one minute, they'll they'll give us one minute. But if we got them talking for 10 minutes, then the name of the game is we get 10 minutes to talk about our weekend. And it's the same with this. The longer we can get them to tell their story, the safer they feel about telling their story, the more they feel like you took a lot of effort in trying to hear, understand and empathise with them, they would some stage reciprocate and then say, well, tell me about your story. And so if you can let them go for one minute, they might let you go for one minute. If you can get them to for 10 minutes, they might let you go for 10 minutes. So I got this guy monologuing for 60 minutes on the flight. I got him going and said, wow, tell me, tell me more, tell me more. How did this happen? What is this like? Uh, you play the talk show host. But you're generally trying to hear, understand and empathise. And after 60 minutes, he told me his journey. He told me what his family life was like. What his, spirit, his understanding of spirituality and God was. He told me three objections to Christianity. that were number one, that all religions are the same anyway. Number two, science has disproved Christianity. And number three, the Christians are homophobic. So I let them talk for 60 minutes. And then there was silence. And then I said, so would you like to hear from me? And he went, yes. And I said, well, you've raised these three things. Is it right if I address these three things? So he let me monologue for 30 minutes until the plane landed and afterwards, we swapped swap contact details. It ended very well. And he said, Wow, thank you for that. That made the plane ride go so quickly. And I think, Oh, I'm not going to move <laughs> <laughs> All right, so number four learn to listen to their story first. Because they will feel heard, understood, empathised. They will feel safe. They'll do the same for you. And also, now you know where they're coming from before you open your mouth. So number four, learn to listen to their story. Number five now, tell our story. So, at some stage, when they have finished telling you about their faith, they will then say, well, tell me about your faith, or do you have a faith? And at this point, we can try to explain Christianity in point form, But I think that's when, unless you have a church background, it's very hard to follow what you're actually trying to say. So what I recommend now is, this is when we say, Well, how about I just tell you how I became a Christian? Would you like to hear that? And they will say, Yes. And you've asked them about their faith, they've asked you about your faith, and then you say, Well, how about I tell you about how I became a Christian? And at this point, this is what you do. You say, Well... I'm a Christian, I grew up in a Christian family. Not that that makes me a Christian, but mum and dad were Christians, so that really helped. But at the age of 16, I had to make a decision for myself. No, that's not what you say, because that's Christian gobbledygook. It's Christian jargon. We do it because Christians know the code. is efficient. So in say in 10 seconds, people Christians get it, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, okay, blah, blah. I don't need to hear the rest. I know where you're coming from. But for non-Christian, that's just gobbledygook and just devoid of any meaning what's, what's fascinating is um, I used to teach at a Bible college and often in college mission the students would have to write a testimony and give it give their testimonies and I used to at the testimonies they all looked exactly the same it's almost like if you got up to give your testimony and you forgot to bring your sheet you'd say hey hey can I borrow yours and then you'd and read it and it'd be exactly the same, hey, i up in a Christian family, not only makes me Christian, but it really helped, you know, so what are it to look like your mum's and dad's life, and then at the age of 16, then i would really own it, blah, 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 and I think, oh, okay, thank you for that, and you give it to back, so it's not personal at all, it's just a Christian template, that's all it is, but it's your story, so we need to learn to tell our story's story, and so I'm going to give you a few tips, stories need a grip. Storytellers use a grid. Stories aren't just an event. It's events put through a storytelling grid. The gospel writers do it. Everyone does it. It's legitimate. It's valid. You get the events in your life and you put it through a storytelling grid. And typically, stories have three moments. There's an intro where you meet the character or characters. Then Then at the transition moment, the mission is defined where are we going? What's our journey? What are we trying to achieve? Okay, this is the body. And usually it leads to a crisis because whatever you're trying to achieve isn't being achieved. It's being thwarted. They're bad guys. This moment, there's a bridge, a transition moment where you look back, you remember your vision, you recommit to it. And then there's a conclusion where there's resolution, and then there's a final moment, there's always one final scene, the French call it the denouement. And that's the new norm. So you begin with the norm here, and this is what the new norm of my life is. So see how this works. Romantic comedies, so Hollywood uses all the time. The Bible writers use it as well. But this is how Hollywood uses it. Romantic comedies, intro, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Here's the mission. They need to fall in love. Okay, bit by bit, they get closer and closer. At the last minute, ah, oh, he does something stupid. He loses the girl. Now there's a bridge moment. That's montage, montage, montage. He looks back to a lover. Do I not love her? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So he reconnects to the original mission. Now there's the make or break moment. He's got to climb a mountain, swim an ocean, catch a train. He gets her and bam, there's a in one. They're happy together. That's romantic comedy. Alright, James Bond. Intro. There's always a chase. There's a bad guy. They catch the bad guy. And that's when they realise there's a mission. There's a bigger bad guy out there trying to blow up the wall. Well, we need to catch the bad guy. So bit by bit they get closer and closer. And the last minute they're captured. So that's a bridge moment. Why? So the bad guy can explain what he was trying to do. To to monologue. And that's when James Bond and the girl, they've got to blow up everything. Because that's how Hollywood resolves all loose ends. Just an explosion and it's done and then there's a dead one in the end. Sports movies, okay we meet the team they're a bunch of lovable losers, not very good. But now there's a competition. That's the mission. We need to win the comp. So they train, they train, they train. at the last minute, oh, are we good enough? No, I don't think we can do this. I don't think we can do this. And there's a bridge moment. It's a training montage. They train, they train, they train. And then they, yeah, we can do it, we can do it. And then you reach the final. And it's always rule of threes again. They're up in the first bit, down a bit, and bit. And the end they win, they win, they win. And then there's a little want So. And, and Christian music works like this. Think Christian music. Okay, intro, verse one, verse two, hold it back. And now chorus, verse chorus. And then it's a bridge moment. Bridge, bridge Bridget. Okay, one And then chorus, 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 chorus. And then, and then just a little resolution of Danny And that's usually the worship leader, Crane. So that's the Danny Mott. All right. Even, even the gospel writers. So we meet Jesus. Uh, he gets baptized here. That defines the mission. He needs to go to Jerusalem to die. He gets, he gets closer and closer. Gets into Jerusalem. Has his doubting moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Should I do this? Should I know this? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. He dies on the cross and then has that final scene with the disciples, the dead in mind. So the Gospel writers do So what does this mean? We need to learn to tell our journey of faith as a story. Introduce who you are. This is the hardest bit. Uh, I remember giving this assignment to my Bible college students, and for a whole hour they would staring at a page, and it was blank. Who am I? Who am I? Who are you? What are your dreams? What are your ambitions? What existential hungers do we have? What is the happy ending that we have to have in life, without it our life would not be fulfilled? With it, we will have the happy ending we're chasing. And, and this is the key. It's a God-given you. It's a God-given need. God-given character. And now you show how in your life, bit by bit, this became your worst enemy. Because you're trying to fulfill it in all the wrong ways. Finding idols in your life. This is where you can introduce the gospel. And this is where I was, oh, this is what Jesus means. Jesus is who I'm looking for here, I just didn't know it. And then show some way where you had to own your faith for real. Like some make or break moment where it had to become real. Not just something you believed in, but now it had to be really real in the way you lived. And then explain what the new norm in your life looks like now. For example, hi, I'm Sam, I'm agent and I'm a high achiever. That's who I am, that's what drives me. So what drives you? Who are you? So I'm a high achiever. For example, show example. So now someone can not borrow your testimony and read it. This is your testimony. For example, I was that annoying kid in primary school that would always stick up his hand and said, "Miss, I finished my work and I please have some more work, please." Uh, in high school, I get ninety nine percent in exam and I just worry, where did I lose that one percent? I got into medicine at Sydney Union, top one percent of the state, and that should have been it for me as a high achiever. But so this is the journey. Um, I need success. I need achievement. I need status. I need security. But the hardest thing about being a high achiever is there's always another mountain to climb. You need trophies more for yourself than for other people to prove to yourself that you have achieved and arrived. And as a high achiever, you always remember your failures more than your successes. Four examples. So, throwing examples. I was in a ward round once as a doctor, and we've been in a hundred ward rounds, but the one I remember the most is the one where they showed x-rays where my operation had failed. The problem being a high achiever is you end up not being just proud, but highly insecure, driven and driven and driven to look for your next success, your next trophy, your next award. Bridge mode. This is where introduce the gospel now. Now I had always known about Jesus ever since I was a boy. Yes, I knew he died for me. Yes, I knew he rose from the dead and lived for me. Yes, I knew because of him God just wipes out away all the shameful stuff I've done. But it was only until I opened the Bible and read a section of the Bible that said Jesus was perfect. So I didn't have to be perfect. Finally, I got what it meant to know Jesus. He was the high achiever, so I didn't have to be the high achiever. God loved me just as I am. So I can be just comfortable as I am. Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. Now, show a moment in your life where you had to own this. Now, I'm not saying this is true for every Christian, but for me, it meant there was this moment where I could give up working full-time as a doctor and decide I'm going to give up, uh, work full-time telling people about Jesus who was perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. Now, being a doctor is a perfect job for an Asian high achiever. fat managers want to know you. They want to throw money at you. At dinner parties, everyone wants to talk to you. Tell me people about Jesus a full-time job. fat managers don't want to know you. And people at dinner parties do not want to talk to you. But I have said, no, 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 I'm comfortable as who I am. I don't need the trophies anymore. Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. So life looks like this for me now. I'm comfortable as I am, but Jesus loves me too much to leave me as the way I am. And every day is a journey where i become more and more like Jesus. I caught up with my old flatmates once, and they couldn't believe the change in my life. They said, I don't drive like a jerk anymore. I don't dominate conversations at dinner parties anymore. And I didn't realize that being a high achiever makes you so insecure. You become an insecure jerk. But now with Jesus, I'm just comfortable as who I am. He's perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. Now, obviously, that's a three- to five-minute version. You can find a one-minute version. You can only have one minute. But tell your story as a story. And that would replace the, I became a Christian. Well, I grew up in a Christian family. Not that that makes me a Christian, but I've already lost you, because that's all Christian jargon. All right, so learn to tell our stories as a story. And this last one will be really short. Number six. Tell a Bible story if we can. So, after we finish telling our story, we can say, "Well, listen, listen, I think for you to really understand my story, how about we hear a story from the Bible as well? And you don't have to memorize a Bible story word for word. Uh, you don't have to get it word for word exact, because um, even the Bible, the, the original was in the Greek, so even the English translation is not word for word. So this is your chance to come up with your own English translation, the way you think the Bible should be translated. And then you just say, okay, I've got a story in the Bible that really explains uh, what I mean. And for a high cheek, I like to tell a story about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. and It's a nice little short one. Another one I like telling is the story of the woman who, who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, because that just really disarms because It just overthrows all presuppositions we have about Jesus and the Christian story. And, and then afterwards you say, well, what did you think about the story of Jesus and that's all you do. You just leave that and you let them talk and you don't disagree and say, oh boy, I better argue that for bit down. But it's just to give them permission to feel safe exploring the story about Jesus. So how can we tell our friends about Jesus? Tonight I've given us six suggestions. Uh, number one, get our friends to become their friends. We need to merge our universes. The gospel might be true, but it would be more believable if our non-Christian friends also belong in a community of believers. So number one, merge our universes, get our friends to become their friends. Number two, we need to go to their things before they can come to our things. Number three, learn uh, the the coffee-dinner gospel sequence as we move them gradually from public into private space. Number four, learn to listen to their story, make them feel safe, heard, understood and empathised. Number five, learn to tell. Our story as a story. Uh, so after they heard the story, they say, hey, do you have a faith? Yeah. Well, how about I tell you how I became a Christian? And then number six, say, oh, you know what? How about if I tell a story from the Bible? And they'll really explain what I'm talking about. And when we finish, they'll say, well, what did you think about the story? And just leave it at that.